What a medicine has come a long, long way. It is truly remarkable to think about just how many people died and what was the biggest case of trial and error so we can have the knowledge we do now. How many people died eating poisonous berries that the rest of us then learned, hey, better not put that one in my mouth. How many people died because we didn't know what germs were until surprisingly recently. Today, I want to talk about a few of my favorite medical practices that I am glad we have decided to stop doing in modern times and teach you the shocking revelation that maybe some of them still happen today. But first, I want to tell the story of the gentleman who wanted us to wash our hands before helping to deliver a baby and how he was ruthlessly bullied for that idea. Crazy, right? Washing hands saves lives? Pfft, not here it doesn't. But before that, if you like what is going on here, please share this around with your friends. I am sure some of them need a reminder to wash their hands every now and then. This is a good and subtle way to tell them to do it. If your friends sent you this, it is because they know you need to be cleaner. If you want to support a little more, please leave a review on iTunes and follow me on social media. Links to those will be in the show notes. Now to that crazy notion of how washing your hands before handling a newborn baby and its mother might be a good idea. Our story starts in 1846 and our hero, Ignaz Semmelweis, who shall now be referred to as Ignaz because I'm incapable of continuing to pronounce that second name, was working in a maternity clinic in Vienna. Many babies and mothers at the time were dying of what they called childbed fever. Ignaz, being the good person he was, decided to investigate a little. The hospital he was working at had two maternity wards, one staffed by all male doctors and the other staffed by female midwives. He found that the patients in the doctor's ward were dying of childbed fever five times as often as the patients in the midwife ward. Word got around and eventually women started to rather give birth on the street than go to the doctor clinic. But try as he might, Ignaz couldn't figure out what was going on. He left to Venice, feeling hopeless and miserable, and while he was away, his friend unfortunately died of childbed fever. This friend was accidentally pricked by a medical student's scalpel during an autopsy of a mother who died of the disease. This was tragic, but it did get him thinking. It made him realize that it can be passed between people, and it doesn't just affect mothers and their babies. This was huge. And he then remembered only the doctors were performing autopsies, not the midwives. This was before gloves too, mind you. So these were done barehanded and then the doctors would go and deliver a baby straight after with their corpse covered hands. Nasty. Ignaz thought so too, so he told his medical staff to clean their hands and instruments with the chlorine solution and death rates plummeted. Huzzah! He had solved it! Was there a celebration? Of course not. I already told you he was bullied for this. Despite the clear evidence that babies and mothers were both living at higher rates than ever before, the other doctors were offended. Offended at the mere notion that they're pristine. Corpse touching hands could have been the reason why people were dying. I say, what a ridiculous proposition. Our medically trained hands are the cause of these deaths? Preposterous! So they stopped washing their hands to prove a point. That point being they had tiny egos and even smaller penises. Death rates increased again and Ignaz lost his job. 
But still determined to help, he went to other hospitals around Europe to preach his message of not being a filthy person when touching babies. No one would take it seriously though. He did the same thing in Budapest, however it was always the same. Death rates would fall, then he would be shunned by the doctors of the area. He got more and more angry about the situation. Understandably, I would have been pissed too. Until one day, he was put into a mental asylum in 1865 when he was just 47 years old. As the story goes, he was beaten by the guards of the asylum and two weeks later died of an infection. Most likely sepsis, which ironically is probably one of the candidates for childbed fever. He died of the thing he spent a good portion of his life trying to eradicate. All because people didn't want to wash their hands. So I am glad, overjoyed at the fact that we all wash our hands all the time now, right? Right? Now let's talk about some not so good medical ideas us humans have had throughout time that we don't do as much anymore. Because they were bad ideas. Let's start with trepanation. This is one of the oldest quote-unquote medical procedures that we know of and was practiced around the world. Trepan comes from the Greek word meaning boring, no not like this podcast boring, but the digging kind of boring, and the suffix Asian means denoting the action or an instance of said action. Put the two together and you have boring action, specifically in the skull. Fun! This was common, like really common. 5% of all skulls that we have found in the Neolithic period, 12,000 to 4,000 years ago, had been trepanned. These skulls were found from Europe and Scandinavia to North America, from Russia and China to South America, particularly in Peru. I think it's super interesting that humans all around the world came up with this idea probably independently from each other a couple times too. Hey, we have heads. Let's smash them open and let's see what happens. Sounds good to me. The most amazing part is a good deal of people who underwent this quote-unquote surgery survived. We know this because on some of the skulls there is signs of the bones regrowing over the hole. Amazing stuff. The oldest confirmed trepanation skulls date back around six to 7,000 years ago, and unfortunately we will probably never know exactly what they were doing back then. Some people believe it was for ritual purposes, like to release the demons that are stuck in your skull. You know, the usual stuff, but we can't ever be sure. The earliest written reasons we have for performing trepanation are from ancient Greece. It was recorded in the Hippocratic Corpus, which is a collection of medical works dating back to 500 BCE. Earlier surgeries were performed by what seems to be the scraping of the skull with the sharp object till a hole appeared. That sounds painful. The Greeks had a more efficient way. They would get a device called a trepan, which was a cylinder with a spiked bottom and a bowstring tied around it so it could spin fast like a drill. No scraping necessary. The history of this process is super interesting and I would recommend you keep looking into it as I can't spend this entire episode on just one medical practice. But seeing as though I kept talking about how old trepanning is, when do you think it stopped? It hasn't! It is way more precise now and done by, you know, 
people who wash your hands because you should definitely do that. Modern doctors use it as a way to help with bleeding in the brain. Also, most importantly, they replace the piece of the skull they remove so you aren't walking around with a giant hole in your head. But seeing as though it is still done today, maybe those ancestors who used to scrape at each other's heads were onto something. Now, our next procedure is even more disturbing than the first. It does still happen, but as an absolute last resort and with a lot a lot more precision than before. Let's talk about lobotomies. What a lobotomy is, to put it very briefly, is the removing or smashing of certain areas of the brain. Most commonly, the prefrontal cortex, the bit that makes you, you. This procedure gained notoriety in 1935 when Antonio Monez performed it on humans after several trials on chimpanzees that seemed to work. The reasons why they wanted to mush up the brain was because they believed it was a cure for some mental illnesses, including depression, schizophrenia, panic disorder, and mania. If you get queasy easy, I am sorry, and you might want to skip this next bit because I'm now going to talk about how it was performed. At first, it was performed with some good old-fashioned trepanation. Aren't you glad you just learnt all about that? They would drill a hole in the front of your skull and then inject ethanol onto the brain, destroying the fibers that connected the frontal lobe with the rest of the brain. I guess they decided they wanted to save their ethanol supply because soon after, Monez introduced an instrument called the leucotome which was kind of like scissors, except at the end of it was a wire. When you pulled on the handles, it would spin, mashing up the brain. Marvelous. This was performed by a surgeon in an operating room. However, Italian psychiatrist Amiro Fiamberti thought that the whole opening the skull idea was a little too messy for him. So he developed a way to access the brain through the eye socket. This inspired the American neurosurgeon Walter Freeman to come up with the transorbital lobotomy in 1945. This method got rid of that pesky operating room and the whole needing a trained surgeon and now could be done much more easily. It was performed using a tool called an orbitoclast, essentially a modified ice pick that was stuck in through the eyes with a hammer and moved side to side to destroy the brain. It is also important to note that Antonio Igas Monez was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology in 1949 for creating the lobotomy, which you should probably realize by now is insane already, but it gets worse. Yes, you can say they didn't know any better back then, but still. The end result of these operations was a human who was a shell of their former self. A lot of the people reported that anyone who had a lobotomy would be calm, hence why they thought this was a cure, but they also had no life in them. They couldn't really do anything by themselves. All their personality, initiative, inhibitions, empathy, they were all destroyed. They sort of became zombies. Not dead, but not alive. It was horrible. 
people slowly started to realize just how bad they were and started banning the procedure. For example, the former USSR banned it and called it inhumane in August 1953, just a few months after Stalin died. Also, they didn't just call it inhumane. They said, and this is an actual quote, it is contrary to the principles of humanity. The USSR said that. The country that just experienced one of the most repressive regimes and awful dictators ever, where millions died in untold awful conditions, called it inhumane. If they were saying it was that bad, America should have 100% listened, because they would have known a thing or two about inhumane. But it wasn't outlawed in America until 1977, when Jimmy Carter created the National Committee for the Protection of Human Subjects of Biomedical and Behavioral Research to investigate allegations that psychosurgery, including lobotomy techniques, were being used to control minorities and restrain individual rights. I shouldn't have said outlawed though, because it's not outlawed, as I said earlier, it still happens, in incredibly rare circumstances and with a lot more precision than with a goddamn ice pick. Before we get on to our last practice, I want to throw in a couple honorable mentions. Tapeworming. In Victorian times, people used to eat tapeworm eggs to lose weight. Do not do this. Meth. This was also taken to lose weight. Do not do this. Smoking tobacco used to be considered a treatment for asthma. It is definitely not. Old energy drinks weren't filled with caffeine. They had real energy. Radioactive energy because they used to put radium in it. Yeah, energy drinks used to be radioactive. Do not drink radium drinks. Back to smoking. In the 18th and 19th century, doctors gave people tobacco smoke enemas. They thought it could cure a lot of things like headaches. Shoving smoke up your ass does not cure headaches. Do not do this. Finally, our last medical practice that I'm glad we don't do, but actually we still do because of course we do, we are humans, is bloodletting. Bloodletting is the simple process of cutting the body to let out some blood, or getting it sucked out with leeches, which back then, when people didn't clean their tools, was probably safer for you, honestly. Either way, so long as you got that pesky blood out, you're going to be fine. Obviously, that is not true and it would have been bad for nearly everyone who underwent this procedure. Bloodletting was also considered a cure-all for much of human history. Headache? Obviously too much blood. Can't sleep? Blood is keeping you up. Need help making an important decision in your life? Don't let some blood clout your judgement. Get that stuff out of you. Surprisingly though, this probably did help some people. By some, I mean like three. Exactly three people in all of history. I am making that number up, but bloodletting is still sometimes used today in very, very rare circumstances of high blood pressure. If you are literally about to burst due to blood, then it is actually okay to get it out. Again though, this is rare and done by professionals in a sterile environment, not by a wacky dude with a bird beak who has some leeches. This process has been around for 2,000 years, and back then, they wouldn't have had any way of knowing if you had high blood pressure, so if bloodletting helped someone, it was a fluke. 
for way too much of human history, we believed in the four humors. You needed a perfect balance of these humors in your body or you would get sick. Couldn't have too much or too little. These humors were blood, black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm. Weird mix, I know, but the whole thing is a little wonky. And the extra weird part is, we're not fully sure what our, let's say, medically adjacent ancestors were referring to when they were talking about these humors. We don't know what they were. The only one we do know is blood because duh, but bile and phlegm both have different meanings now. There is an idea that the four humans are named from the colors that appear after letting blood sit for an hour in a glass container as the contents in the blood start to separate. The bottom becomes dark as the blood clots, which could be dark bile. Above that is red blood cells, which would have been blood. Above the blood is the white blood cells, which appear clearish white, which could have been the phlegm. And on top of that is a yellowish clear layer of serum or possibly yellow bile. This idea was made only about a hundred years ago, so it could be very wrong, but seeing how often those ancient people collected blood, it could be accurate. Science is all about taking what our ancestors knew and continuing to apply and extend that knowledge. I am so grateful to be alive during the time I am where we no longer scrape holes in our heads or cut arteries to sleep better. Let us continue to improve the world by learning more. If you enjoyed this, again, don't forget to spread it around and follow me on social media. If you really, really enjoyed it, hey! I have a Patreon, only one tier at the moment, the friend and coffee provider tier because I need a lot of that to come up with these ideas and write them out. It is $10 USD a month, less than a coffee a week and it helps me and you get the added bonus of listening to the episodes a week in advance. Yay! Also, open to any suggestions you might want. I am flexible. Until next time friend, love you. (laughs) 